0: One song that Levi has learned recently that I also learned when I grew up in kind of Sunday school and things like that, um, there's a little children's song that goes like this, my God is so big, have you heard this song? So strong and so mighty, what? There's nothing my God cannot do. You heard that before? Who's heard this? Am I the only one who heard this? All right, if you've heard it, sing it with me. My God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. All right? okay. So there, there's a kid's song. Um, going with that song, uh, Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah prays to God and says this, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is to hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Christian theology teaches that God is this word omnipotent. Omnipotent is a Latin term that simply means all powerful. Okay? Omnipotent. Omni, O-M-N-I, means all. Potent, the last part of that verse, doesn't necessarily mean what we use. We use the word potent sometimes. I'll give you an illustration how we normally use it. Uh, one time, Ash and I were sitting in a Sunday morning service somewhere, and in one of those churches where the pastor was constantly saying, um, say this to your neighbor. You've been in those churches the pastor was always like, he'll say something, he'll say to you, say this to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and say this. And so what he said in that moment is he said, uh, turn to your neighbor and say, God owns everything. So Ash turned to me and said, God owns everything. To which I replied, does he own a Tic Tac because you really need one right now? <laughs> potent. Sometimes that's what we think of when we think of potent, right? Man, their breath is potent. Uh, Levi's at that age. He likes to wear little black little Nike tennis shoes with no socks. You know what that means. After he's been playing all day or at school running around all day and those feet have been sweaty, he takes those suckers off. And man, it is Potent, right? Uh, When Zach was a teenager and had friends over, they would hang out in this little room and then we'd go back there the next day. It's just like some kind of teenage body, sweat, smell that would come out, right? Potent, that's how we think of potent, but uh, the Latin term here for potent means powerful. Kind of the same context. Powerful breath, right? Um, Omnipotent, all-powerful omnipotent. That's what the phrase means. It's one of those omni words that we use to define who God is. So we call those his attributes, who he is. Now some of the other ones that you'll hear is omniscient. That means all knowing. Some of you are like, yeah, I know what that means. My spouse is, thinks they know everything. They think they're omniscient. Um, uh, the, other, the other word that we use is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is all present. So when we say God is omnipotent, we are asserting that God and God alone is all-powerful. Now, what does that mean? Right? It's common to hear these phrases. God can do anything. His power is unlimited. All things are possible. There's nothing our God cannot do. These are common phrases you'll hear in Christian vernacular. But does the belief God is omnipotent mean God can do anything? Or are there things God cannot do? Great question. I'm glad you ask it because that's the primary idea behind this series. Like if you didn't ask that question, just be awkward right now. We'd have nowhere to go with this series. But we do. God is omnipotent. Are there things God can do or not do? So a hypothetical question that often gets asked in circles when these type where these type of discussions take place, <coughs> whether it's around the kitchen table or in the break room. You always got that guy at work that's a skeptic that's like, let me ask you something about God. Um, Where did God come from? That's a common, right? So wherever these type of conversations take place, seminary, Bible college, cafes, right? These are the places these type of conversations normally happen, podcasts. One of the common questions is, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? Is God, if God is all-powerful, can He make a create a rock so big that He cannot lift it? Gotcha, right? I'm ready to walk away from my Christian faith and become an atheist, just from that question alone, right? It's not really a gotcha question, it's a hypothetical question that you'll get asked a lot, and Scripture seems to affirm that, right? It indicates that all things are possible for God. Now, Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for our Lord? Luke 1:37. for nothing is impossible for God. Matthew nineteen twenty six. with God, all things are possible. And so it appears that Scripture affirms this idea that God can do anything, that nothing is too hard for Him. So are these type of hypothetical questions, can God create a rock too big to lift, are these type of questions valid? Two thoughts on that. One, each of these statements I just read from Scripture happen in a specific context to make a specific point, Right? Genesis 18, 14 is God saying to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby. And Abraham's like, do you know how old I am? Do you know how old she is? And then, then the question comes out of that, is anything too hard for God, right? Um, Luke 1:37 is the angel talking to Mary. I'm a virgin. How am I going to give birth to a baby? The response is, is there anything too hard for God, too difficult for God? Uh, The the context of Matthew nineteen sixteen is God or Jesus using the story of the 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 rich man that turns away and walks away and um, and Jesus makes a statement about it's difficult for a a person with with a lot of means to come to enter the kingdom of God and and the disciples like well who can get in then and Jesus uses a statement uh, with God all things are possible. And so there's a context for each one of those statements in Scripture. Uh, they're not just like these exhaustive statements on the omnipotence and theology of omnipotence of God. So that's kind of the first idea here. And then the second idea that is most important for this series, because of who God is, because of who He is, there are certain things He cannot do. This statement has to do, this is an important word I'm going to use, it has to do with the nature of Of who God is. Let's talk about that word, nature. Our nature, in this context, I'm not talking about like nature, the world, our nature, who we are, our nature is what makes us who we are. I'll illustrate it. We are humans. We cannot not be humans. Double negative to make my point. We cannot not be humans. You're a human. You can't be a football. You're a human. You can't be a giraffe. You can't be a rock. You can't be pizza. Zach knows this person on social media now with the identity thing. That's like they've they've officially identified themselves as pizza. Okay. Uh, But you can't be pizza. You're not pizza. Okay. Uh, No matter what you identify yourself as, you can't be anything other than pizza. Human. You can't be the wind. You are a human. You can identify yourself as any of those things, but that doesn't make you any of those things. You are a human. Think of a fish. A fish swims in the water. A fish breathes underwater. A fish cannot breathe outside the water. That's why when you catch them and lay them on the bank, what are they doing? They're flopping around trying to get back in the water because they can't exist outside of the water. They can't breathe outside of the water a fish is a fish a fish cannot run through the forest like a deer a fish cannot mosey like a groundhog through your yard a fish cannot scurry like a squirrel up a tree why it's not within the nature of a fish to do any of those things a fish is a fish a fish can only do what a fish can do that's nature God's nature is what makes him who he is. It is what makes God, God. And no one else, as we just sang, no one else God. His nature is unique and exclusive to God and God alone. What that means is there can never be two gods. Based on who God is, his nature is unique and exclusive to him. And because of who he is... Because of his nature, there are certain things God cannot do. For example, God is holy. He cannot sin. God is love. He cannot be unloving. God is good. He cannot be bad. God is eternal. He cannot cease to be God. Here's what biblical teaching says regarding God's omnipotence. And this is so important. Let me define omnipotence from a text Standpoint. God can do anything he wants or imagines that is in accordance with who he is, with his nature. So when we say God is omnipotent, what we mean is God can do anything that does not contradict or violate who he is, his nature. It's less about God's inability to do something or that his power is somehow limited, and it's more about God being God. And God being who God is, actually this validates the bigness of God when you understand that He can't do anything that would contradict who He is. So, let's revisit our hypothetical question. Can God make a rock so big that He cannot lift it? This, this type of question, by the way, is just a, is what we call a category mistake. If God can create a rock that He can't move, then guess what? What he created, the rock in this case, becomes as big or as powerful as God himself. And whatever is more powerful than God becomes God. That question, again, is a hypothetical. It's a category mistake. Let me explain it in terms we can understand. If I were to go up to a bachelor and say, what is the name of your wife? You'd be like, what are you talking about? It's a bachelor. A bachelor can't have a wife by the very definition of what it means to be a bachelor. It's an unmarried person. Or if I were to, were to say to you, hey, what does blue taste like? I'd be like, what does blue taste like? I mean, unless you're talking about the cartoon dog blue and like somebody's ungrilled him up, then that's a, or better than like blue's clues now is the new blue straight out of I think Australia, Bluey. Anyone familiar with Bluey? Okay, it's my favorite toddler age cartoon. If you're wondering what my favorite toddler age cartoon that Levi watches is, it's Bluey, okay? Um, And so unless I'm talking about Bluey or blue getting grilled up somehow, you'll be like, blue doesn't taste like anything. Blue is a color. If I were to say to you, draw me a square circle, it's impossible, why? Because the moment that you draw four right, four sides, it becomes a square. It's not a circle. You can't draw a circle that's a square. It's a category mistake. You can't take a fish for a walk on a leash and the fish survive. It can't live outside of the water. So simply put, God can't contradict his own nature. If God can make it, he can lift it. If he can create it, he can destroy it. Nothing God makes can be more powerful than God or it becomes equal to God or superior to God. If it were possible for God to act against His nature, He would no longer be God. So technically, the lyric in the children's song that we sing, There's Nothing My God Cannot Do, is not actually precise, is it? It's a little bit inaccurate and not quite biblical. Now, pump the brakes. It's okay to like let your kids sing that song. All right, they're not heretics if they sing that song. Um, what we discover in this series is the sentiment behind that song is accurate. So we're not going to trash it or protest it or cancel it. Um, it actually emphasizes God's power and bigness. So here's the premise for our entire series. Based on who God is, his nature, there are certain things that God cannot do. This is also equally important, what I'm about to say. Many of the things God cannot do are things that we do based on who we are, our sinful nature. Many of the things God cannot do are things that we do. And we will discover in this series the things that we can do and do, that God cannot do, is good news. It's good news for us. Does this all make sense? So, considering our understanding about the nature of God, let's talk about the first thing in our series that God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot sin. Why? Because of who He is. Because of His nature? What is it about God's nature that keeps him from sinning? I'll read some scriptures here to answer that question, okay? And I that just, I mean, you can you could Google this right here and, and pull more scriptures than you want to take time to read. I'm going to pull just a sampling from every major portion of scripture. Exodus 15, 11. See if you can pick up on the trend here. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? Leviticus nineteen two. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, "You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy." First Samuel two two. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 96, 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Isaiah 6, 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Ezekiel 36, 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord your God. Um, And when, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Ezekiel thirty eight twenty-three. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. Matthew five forty-eight. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. First uh, Peter 16. fifteen sixteen. We'll come back to this at the end of the message. Uh, but as as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then let's go to the end of the book, Revelation 4:8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. So this is the unending chorus of the angels around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are Holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So you see what's trending here? You see what the hashtag is in all these verses? What is it about God's nature that keeps him from sinning? God is what? He's holy. God is absolutely and completely holy. He is righteous, perfect, and pure. God does not even have the capacity to choose sin. God cannot sin. He cannot choose sin. It is impossible for God. He can never do wrong. By His nature, He is infinitely holy. God is holy. The idea of holy is that He's even set apart from sin. That means God cannot lie. God cannot steal. God cannot cheat. God cannot lust. God cannot take His own name in vain. God cannot covet. God cannot, I don't know, pull for Georgia. God cannot watch The Bachelor, right? Whatever sin you want to add to your list, God cannot do those things. Not only can God never sin, God is the standard by which sin is determined. He is the judge of good and evil. He is this eternal arbitrator of what is right and wrong. Let's put it in language we can understand as Alabama people that love football. God is the first down marker. He is the standard, right? If you're trying to get a first down, He's what determines whether you got the first down, right? He's the chain gang. He's the yellow line on TV, right? All of our Kids that are under, you know, 15 right now, they think like the yellow line's a part of the actual field, right? You go to a game in life, you're like, where's the yellow line? It's like, that's only on TV, son. God's the marker. He is the bar. He sets The standard. He is the center of the bullseye. He is the determiner of what is right and what is wrong. Regardless of what our culture tells you, we are not the final arbitrators of right and wrong. You know why? We're not holy. We're not sinless. We're not perfect. We're the opposite. We are sinners by nature. We sin naturally. And because we are sinners, we try and step into God's space and be the judge of right and wrong, don't we? I mean, that's what happened in the opening scene of the Bible. Adam and Eve decided that they should be the arbitrators of right and wrong. And in doing so, they attempted to place themselves above God. We just talked about it in our small groups this past Wednesday night. If you're at City Church for any length of time, you hear me talk about it frequently. That Adam and Eve were the first ones to commit spiritual idolatry in their heart. That they took the place in their heart that is reserved for God and God alone, and they substituted it with something. That in that moment, their decision of right and wrong, my blank becomes sits on the throne of my heart. And since that moment in the garden, all of humanity has followed suit. That we attempt to usurp God's authority and place our needs, our wants, our desires on the throne of our hearts, and it does not have to be taught. I love baby Olivia, baby Grady, but you know what that these parents are never going to have to do? They're never going to have to sit down with their kids and say, hey, let me explain how to sin, how to tell a lie, how to do wrong. As wonderful and precious as they are right now, guess what? They're little sinners. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Mine are too. (laughs) And you'll learn that. You're already learning a psalm. And you're like, you know, finally 2 a.m. I got to sleep. It's like, I want food. You sinner. Right? You don't have to teach any of this stuff. We are sinners by nature. As innocent and awesome and sweet as little Levi is, he is a sinner by nature. Just in the last week or so, had a little friend over the house or outside playing in the the garage, and they're playing um, race cars, letting little Hot Wheels cars run down the track out there. And Ash and I go out, um, and there's a Hot Wheels car on the main car, the car, Ashley's car. There's a Hot Wheels car sitting up there, and so automatically in our minds, you know what we're thinking. Like, he took the Hot Wheels car, and he raced it up the car to where it was at. And so the question was, Levi, did you put the car, did you run your car, Hot Wheels car, on mommy's car up to where it's at now? No. Hold up. Maybe you misunderstood my question. Did you run the car up to mommy's car? No. Did, I'm not gonna call his name, did he do it? No. And by the way, he let me know that Levi did it. <laughs> it was Levi. It was Levi. And so we're walking over to the car to see where the car is. And here I see Levi do this. He grabs his little buddy by the arm and like start whispering to him. I see what's going down here right now. (laughs) Levi not only is lying, he's trying to get him to lie for him. little sinner. (laughs) We took care of it after the friend left. I didn't want to traumatize the kid. Like I don't know the parenting skills of the friend that was there or the parenting practices of the child that was there. And so it was like, Levi, me, and you're gonna have a talk once he's gone. So we revisited the conversation and helped him understand the importance of telling the truth. I didn't have to teach him to do that a single time. I have to sit him down and teach why. He is a sinner by nature. He is hardwired toward sin. So think about the contrast in natures here. God is absolutely holy and cannot sin. We are absolutely sinful and cannot not sin. And so as a result, we are left with this unbreachable gap between an absolutely holy God and absolutely sinful people. It is an eternal dilemma. How can sinful humans approach such a holy God? Now, as humans, we tend to respond to that dilemma in one of two ways. We tend to either kind of recognize the dilemma of God is holy and I'm not, and I'm never going to measure up to that standard, and so I'm just going to go this way, right? By nature, our, our sin heads toward deeper depravity, and so we flesh it out through unrighteousness. The gap is too big. There's no reason to even try, and so I just live life that way. By the way, outside of Jesus, why would you not? And so we just, we see that played out in individuals. We see it played out in our culture of just pursuing unrighteousness. The gap is too big. So we just pursue our own nature. We allow sin to run its course. The second way, and perhaps the most dangerous way that we react to it's kind of this American and now the the popular DIY, do-it-yourself, mentality that we call self-righteousness. That somehow I can bridge the gap through my own efforts, my own performance, that I can be good enough, that I can kind of earn my way, that as long as I'm not quite as bad as this guy, I'm a little better than this person, as long as I treat my wife and kids okay most of the time, as long as I do my job at work, That uh, attend church every once in a while, maybe even throw a little cash at the church occasionally, right? We have this kind of DIY approach I'll do my best I'll work hard for it and it's I'm really not so bad unrighteousness is Romans 1 self-righteousness is Romans 2 unrighteousness is the prodigal son self-righteousness is the elder brother remember the brother in the story if you were here when we did the prodigal son story the elder brother is the one stayed home did all the right stuff Guess what? He was still removed from the Father. The Father still had to go out to the self righteous Son and invite him into the house. Unrighteousness, self righteousness both fall short. So, what is the answer? Enter Jesus, the Gospel. God the Son becomes one of us, and Jesus is sinless, He's holy. The redemptive narrative on how God addresses this dilemma is what we call the gospel. It's what we call the good news. That God enters our space in the form of a human. That he becomes one of us. And he does so without sin. He does so without sinning. While on earth, Jesus claims he's sinless. Think about the significance of that claim. Like sin is not just doing wrong, it's also failing to do right, Scripture says. Jesus claims to be without sin. That means Jesus always, every single time, did right. That means that Jesus, every single time, never did wrong. Think about that. His thoughts, His words, His actions, His motives, His conduct... His reactions. Jesus never did wrong. Again, terms we can understand. Jesus never got cut off in traffic and flipped someone off. Never. Never reacted that way. Which reminds me of a story, by the way. We're coming down 24 toward Decatur, trying to get to the airport one day le- next week. I see this guy just blow up behind me. Uh, and there's, I'm, I'm just trying to get around the car in the slow lane and move over so he can just get by and get wherever he's trying to go in a hurry. But instead of waiting... Guess what he decided to do, right? I'm going to hit the slow lane, and then I'm going to cut off this car that's in front of me, almost causing a wreck. I had to slam my brakes on, natural reaction for me, blow my horn. Guess what he does? Flips me off. Like, dude, you cut me off. Why am I the one that's getting that reaction? You're reacting to me. And so I just did the Jesus thing and prayed for him. I didn't flip him off. If that's what you're thinking. I let him know I wasn't happy with his reaction to me, and the dude wanted to pull over to the side of the road and fight. I'm like, dude, I'm, look at me. I'm, I got a wife and a five-year-old in the car. I'm not pulling off the road to fight you in your Nissan Sentra. <laughs> Jesus did react this way, right? The reason he didn't, because there were no, like, slow lane, fast lanes in that day and age. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Get your donkey out of the way. No. Jesus claimed to be sinless, sinless in every way. He claimed to be holy without sin. No one has ever made this claim without any credibility. Now, it's a common accusation in relationships. You always think you're right, right? But no one ever made this claim with any credibility. Sun Yan Moon claimed to be sinless, but his, let's just say, sexual endeavors said otherwise. Muhammad, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Nick Saban, none of these ever claimed to be sinless. But Jesus did. And this is important. Jesus does not claim to just be better than the next guy. He did not claim just to be morally superior. He did not claim to just be a really good guy. He claimed to be sinless. Jesus is not just Mr. Rogers. By the way, if his claim was not true, he was an arrogant jerk and a horrible liar, and you should not follow him. Could you imagine if if we made this claim today, I'm sinless, follow me. He'd be like, that guy's out of his mind, or he is a jerk. Jesus claimed to be sinless. Even in John 8, at the end of John 8, Jesus opens up the the floor for anyone to point out his sin. He's like, if anybody can point out sin, like bring it out now. Even his own family affirmed his sinlessness. Like, try convincing your brother that you're sinless, right? Jesus' own family, by the end of his life and his resurrection, affirmed his sinlessness. And it is through Jesus, the sinless Son of God, we saw in Romans 8, that the righteous requirements of God are fulfilled. As a human, Jesus was tempted like we are with sin. As God, He was tempted, but He did not sin. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians five, twenty-one. such a beautiful verse that helps explain this point. For our sake... Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, who was sinless so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That the unholy becomes sin. Holy through Christ that his righteousness replaces and supersedes our unrighteousness that his righteousness replaces our self righteousness that in Christ we are made holy in his sight and as a result our lives are marked by holiness so let's bring this full circle God who is sinless. Jesus bridges the gap, lives a sinless life so that we, right? Here's what brings the unbreachable gap together so that we might be made holy. I'm going to go to Peter here because, I mean, who better to illustrate this than Peter, right? He's a disciple that's like always always sticking his foot in his mouth, always saying the wrong thing. Peter's the guy flipping people off that are driving slow. And so look what Peter says in his small epistle. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says our lives as followers of Jesus should be marked by holiness. Man, that's a scary word for us. Holiness. And when we think holiness, don't think like shaved head monk living in silent isolation, fasting, and humming Celtic hymns. Like, that's not what we're talking about, holiness. Also, more dangerous for us, do not think about some manufactured list of do's and don'ts of what holiness looks like. Holiness is grounded in and flows from who God is. We who are in Christ are set apart from the sin-driven, me-centered culture around us and and enabled to follow Jesus. Here's what that means. I think different because I'm in Christ. I act different. I work different. I love different. I respond different. I behave different. I parent different because of Jesus not in some weird removed kind of way but in a reflecting Jesus kind of way holiness is not some list for you to check holiness is a virtue that arises from who we are and as we understand who God is as we understand who we are in Christ we will be moved and motivated toward holiness we get it backwards so much We make holiness about do's and don'ts and this is what a holy person looks like and does not look like. We love the list. And I can give you a list, right? But here's the deal with lists. They will not make you holy. They will only exhaust you because you'll not live up to it. And you'll be beating yourself up constantly or you'll absorb yourself in some type of self-righteousness that you somehow measured up. Holiness is God doing His work in us. He is holy, and as we fall in love with Jesus and draw near to Jesus, our lives mirror who He is, and He is holy. Here's how John Piper defines holiness. Holiness at its core is, catch this, treasuring who God is. Treasuring who God is. When we see and treasure God for who he is, and he is holy, guess what? We are drawn toward him. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. To live a life of holiness, a life that reflects who God is. God cannot sin. And that's good news for us. It's good news for us because it reminds us He's not against us, He will not sin against us sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because as we live as humans again these are things that we can and we do right we are sinners by nature we're not holy we sin against people and we're sinned against and so there's kind of this underlying current that we live life with that we have to navigate in this relationship with God And this underlying current tells us this. Don't trust this person completely because they might what? They might betray you. They might lie to you. They might deceive you. They might hurt you. And we live with that, don't we? We live with kind of a guardedness, even with those that are the closest to us, maybe with even a slight, based on our personal experience maybe with a slight question mark in our minds, when is this person going to hurt me, betray me, deceive me, lie to me, manipulate me? The gospel says God is for you. He is not against you. His ways are perfect and righteous and good. His heart is absolutely pure. He forgives. He can be absolutely Completely trusted. He will not lie to you, deceive you, manipulate you. The question mark that lingers in our minds about ourselves, about others, about our human relationships, that question mark can be eradicated with God. It can, be, it can be done away with with God because God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely sinless. God cannot lie. God cannot deceive. God cannot manipulate. God does not even have the capacity to do these things. And so we lean into Him. We rest in Him. When the question mark says, Surface and when they they seem to take the forefront and right and when things happen in life that cause us to ask questions and have uncertainties and doubts, we can rest in the fact God is completely holy, God is completely pure, God is completely sinless, God is for me. He's gonna be there for me. I can rely on him, I can rest in him. And the only reason I can know those things is because God is omnipotent, and that means God cannot sin. That God Will always, every single time, speak and be the truth into my life. And that's what we'll talk about next Sunday.